Let's read together starting in the 14th verse of Romans chapter 12. We're coming to the end of Romans 12. And what Paul's going to convince us is that in addition to non-conformity to the world, that's how this chapter started, non-conformity to the world, in addition to many things that we do actively, there are a number of things as well that mark Christians that, is based on, that are based on restraint. What do we not do? What does self-control look like in the life of someone who is walking with Jesus? That's one of the major questions that we're asking as we close Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 14 down through the end of the chapter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 21, I think, is a good summary of the thrust of where Paul is asking us to consider the life of Christ working itself out through us. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In fact, if I had to put a title over today, the thing that we're thinking through together is, what does it look like to give good for evil? Does that mark us? And is Christianity based on this idea that when we have evil done against us, our instinct is not vengeance? but good. Good for evil is the theme of this section. And this is, I am convinced, one of the most difficult, one of the most patience-building, and one of the most uncommon characteristics of Christians. This fruit of the Spirit, if you might say, this idea that you do not harbor resentment. You do not give birth to bitterness in your life. The idea that your instinct is not to give evil when done evil to you, but to bless instead is a very, very rare and choice and precious thing. It strikes me, in fact, that in many ways this is inimitable. It is hard to imitate. Some fruits or some ways of being Christian are easy to imitate. They are, you know, maybe like great value brand of some groceries. There's some things you'd be dumb. They taste just as good. You'd be dumb. Save the $2. Buy the off-brand. It's the same thing. Maybe you have a list of those kind of things in your house. But here's my guess. My guess is that you also have a list of things in your house that you would never, ever dare buy the imitation. They're like great value Pop-Tarts. They don't even deserve the name. They're horrible. There's certain imitations or certain off-brand things that at the moment you come in contact with them, they're just grotesque. They're offensive. It's hard to imitate the real thing. 
And my guess is that for many people to live more or less like a Christian, at least in some ways, may come naturally. It's easy to imitate. It's easy to imitate love through flattery and mutual self-interest. It's easy to imitate joy and rejoicing by simple optimism and grinning your way through it. But it is extremely difficult to imitate a from-the-heart desire to forgive and to let go harm that has been done to you and to those whom you love. To bless those who persecute you and harm you is a truly supernatural thing. And for those of us who are either now or have been or can imagine being in the throes of this kind of evil surrounding us and swirling around, to live in this manner feels as alien as anything else described in all of Scripture. So how will it be that we become convinced that this kind of life is as part and parcel to our life with Christ as any other thing? What does it look like to not repay evil with evil? And the list here, just in these few short verses, is full of what seem to be high bar kind of living. I'll just re-go through a few of the things that have just been commended to us. Bless those who persecute. Bless those who curse you. Associate with the lowly. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. There's no room in there. Never, ever avenge yourselves. Overcome evil with good. If you want a good idea of what being a living sacrifice might feel like, then you try to embody these verses for a while, and I think you'll see that this is, in fact, sacrifice. To entrust oneself to Jesus Christ to entrust oneself to the ultimate judge of the universe, to give oneself over to God in this significant a way, is to live sacrificially. This is where the rubber meets the road. This cannot be faked. And yet, it is the command we've been given. And it is for all of those who are in Jesus. So my task today, here's what I feel like my task is. My task is to consider some reasons to convince us that this kind of life is actually to be expected for those who walk with Jesus. Here are some of the reasons. So if if we're to repay evil with good, and if that's the big heading, then here are some reasons that are given. And I think that we're going to have to walk through these and say, is this the life that I am receiving and cultivating? First, we're going to say the reason to live like this is because Jesus commanded it. That's about as baseline, a straightforward way as you could imagine. Because Jesus said so. So Jesus commanded it. We're going to look clearly at the way that he lived his life and the things that he commanded. And we're going to see that this is how we ought to be living. Secondarily, we're going to realize that not only did Jesus command it, but peace itself depends on it. Peace in any form depends on living with this kind of ethic. And then finally, what we're going to realize after seeing that Jesus commanded it and that peace itself depends on this is that living in this way is the only way to truly magnify God as judge over all the world. In other words, we're going to remember that God will judge evil. That needs to be underneath so that we're not convinced that all the world has no backbone. No, God will judge evil and being convinced of that will help us to live in this particular way. 
So let me just start out by reminding you that Jesus commands clearly to live in this way. And maybe I'm going to say more than that. Maybe what we should notice about the life of Jesus is not only that he commands it, but that he models this kind of life. Jesus was one who had all the power in the universe. In fact, he upheld it by the very word of his power. He could command angels in a moment, and yet he did not speak a word when reviled and mocked. He was obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. It was Jesus who not only commanded and modeled it, but then it is the Spirit of Jesus given to those who are his followers that would make us like him. And so as we study his life, we should ask the question, is this the kind of thing I signed up for when I signed up to walk with Christ? Let's look at Matthew chapter 5 together. This is as clear, as straightforward a command as we can get. Matthew chapter 5, it's right in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps Jesus' most well-known teaching. And he has just discussed and said, you know how the world is. You know the saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Everybody knows that instinct. It's as old as dirt. But, and this is verse 39 now in Matthew chapter 5, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We'll stop there. And I'll just point out that Jesus makes known a number of things. One, there is evil in the world and there are those who are evil. He says, don't resist the one who is evil. Those evil people will not do theoretical evil in the world, but they'll do actual cheek slapping. They will actually punch. They will actually take. They will actually steal. More than that, God knows these things are happening, and he continues to let the world operate with both of these realities. So it is not a surprise or a mistake that God sees the evil, not only the evil, but the evil one. And for now, we'll see that later, for now, he is allowing the sun to rise on them. The evil scoundrel gets to feel the sunrise on his face just as much as the prayerful saint. That's what he's trying to say. For now, they are coexisting in the world. He also says, there will be those who persecute you. The question becomes, did we listen to the rest of what is being said? Many of us feel and know the reality of evil. Many of us, in fact, have a discerning spirit and we can point out the evil one. Many in our midst even would say that depending on circumstances or timing or place, that those kind of people and that kind of thing is growing or fading. They have a, a pulse even on what, they have graphs that show how much evil is increasing or decreasing. They are discerning people. They know exactly what kind of words are real persecution. They know what rights may be difficult to defend. 
They have identified with great discernment those who persecute. I just wonder if the motivation in having done so is so that we can bless, is so that we can play, so, pray, <laughs> so we can play. Well, you know, if you're children, come to the playground or whatever, you know. In other words, the incongruence between hours spent lamenting or pointing out the persecutors, the incongruence between the hours and time and energy spent there and passion spent with time spent praying or building positive goodness in the other side, I believe is a telling sign that much of what is done in Jesus' name is actually done contrary to His Spirit. Did you know it's possible to disobey Jesus in Jesus' name? I think this happens often, and it can happen very especially if we realize that there is evil in the world and even point them out, but we don't take the next step to say, okay, then what does it mean to do good to those who persecute? How does this work? This is not an optional part of walking with Jesus. After all, if we have His Spirit, if we've been bound to Him, then we will inevitably become like Him. And it's amazing how tempting it is for me often to pray that God would empower and strengthen and give great success to my vengeance to her. That in reality, we wish to see punishment, we wish to see evil brought against, judgment, we wish to have, here's what I long for a lot of times, I just want a righteous outlet for my anger. And so I pray and I pray and I pray, and I say, God, would you please, please bless my plans for vengeance? And all the while, the Spirit of Jesus is saying, I don't do that kind of thing. I don't know what spirit you have in you, but it's not mine. If the instinct is evil for evil, if the instinct is greater power, for power has come against. If the answer to persecution is the best of zingers, oh Jesus, give me the best comeback lines ever, then we may have learned part of the teaching of Jesus, but not actually desired His Spirit. I'm going to give you an example of someone who seemed to have, they had to learn this lesson. I know how hard this can be. And I'm always encouraged by the disciples who surround Jesus. Because they're real people who, it turns out, weren't perfect like him. And one of my favorite examples of someone who had to learn the Spirit, what it looked like to not be conformed to the world in them or in him, meant he had to change. And that person is Peter. The disciple Peter, I believe, was probably pushing back often against this kind of thing. You know how some people have personalities that just make sense? Some things come easy to them. There are people who dream in math. You know those kind of people? Oh man, I woke up this morning just doing those proofs. I just love that. And then the rest of the class is just moaning like, oh, you're, you're terrible. My guess is that because of temper and whatever else, some of the disciples, they liked certain things Jesus said, and then other ones really pushed back. Peter, it seemed, did not like restraint. He didn't like winsome, careful, patient things. And I'll give you one of the greatest examples. John chapter 18, starting in verse 10. Here's the scene. Jesus is close to having the moment of his sacrifice. He's coming near the cross. One of the 
One of the disciples has betrayed Jesus, sold him for silver. An army has come. Guards have come with the high priest to take Jesus captive. They are legitimately in this moment bringing evil, a cosmic level of evil, coming to crucify the Messiah of the world. And it says to us in John chapter 18, verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, which is such a great line, no one's ever said that about me, then Lance Olam, having a sword. But Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I think this is because Malchus got healed later. Jesus heals him, we find out in one of the other Gospels. Not because it would be hard to identify a one-eared man. So John has to put in there, the servant's name was Malchus. It was that guy. And then verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And I want you to imagine the scene and how unbelievably counterintuitive this must have been for Peter. Peter loves Jesus. He's signed up. He's followed him for years. It's his right-hand man. The soldiers come. They want to take him away for a cosmic level of evil. And Peter says, now's my moment. I'm going to jump forward. And imagine, you ever had a head injury? You know what happens with a head injury? I don't want to be too graphic, but just imagine he cuts off the ear and, I mean, it's, it's like this, like spurting blood, okay? This is a scene. It's not a small thing. This is a commotion. My guess is that the rest of the soldiers didn't stand peacefully by and say, huh, he's having trouble over there. My guess is that everyone stands ready. Like people are getting, they're, they're sizing one another up. They're taking off their earrings. Like that is, it's about to go down. It's a scene. And in this moment, Peter probably feels like this is the most natural and normal thing in the world. And it is the the spirit and the word of Jesus that has to draw him back and say, this is not the way. We're going to win, but not like that. And I think the lesson behind all of this is that what Jesus is trying to say to Peter is, Peter, there is a strength that is stronger than strength. There is a good that is deeper and more prevalent than this evil. And if you're patient and you walk with me, we will win. What's amazing about this is that this same Peter, same Peter who reacts like this and has to be hauled back and said, put your sword away, is the one who later writes in 1 Peter chapter 3. This same Peter pens later, having been persecuted in the midst of a not welcoming culture, writes this in the third chapter of 1 Peter. He says, do not repay evil for evil. You imagine he has it in his mind? He's writing this out. Do not repay evil for evil. And he just pauses and listfully thinks about the year. Don't do this. Or reviling for reviling. And maybe he pauses and he thinks about how Jesus walks silently amidst the mockers. Do not revile for reviling. On the contrary, he says, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. Peter says, here's what I've learned. The most natural thing in the world when you've been sinned against and all the pain in the world is just invading your soul. The most natural thing in the world is to want to resend all of that pain Because it will feel good. That will be the blessing. That will be happiness. The word for blessing in Scripture, to be blessed or to bless, is to make happy or to have happiness. 
And Peter has learned instead that by submitting to Jesus, by not reviling when reviled, by not resending evil when given evil, that there is a deeper and true and lasting blessing. Now, I don't know about you, but this is hope. This is hope that something so drastic, so changing could take place in someone's heart and mind. Because you may be in the midst of a fight against evil that you think is nearly impossible to win unless you strike back. Who among us has not lashed out with righteous indignation? We could see the evil so clearly. It was right there in front of us. How many of us have not been too impassioned and taken correction or truth-telling to friends too far and perhaps enjoyed a vengeful blow? My guess is, is that if I sat with each of you, you could walk through and say, this has been, I've been reviled. This is what evil looks like. And here's the thing about this. Much like the reason I made such a big scene about what happened when the ear was cut, that's what this is like in real life. When I say evil for evil or reviling for reviling, these are often not simple little moments. Sin has consequences. It gets everywhere. It stains and scars your life. It's odd to think, but if I sat with you in your story, all of us have we bear the stains of ear blood, if that makes sense. It's an odd way to say it. But we've fought evil, maybe in our own way, and we bear the marks of it. It's not neat, it's not clean, it's not easy. And so to be convinced, to be convinced that the Spirit of Jesus might build in us such a strength and an ability to withstand not by resending evil, but to give blessing and prayer. This is a miraculous level, a supernatural level of living. And it is the promise for all of those who are in Christ. So, Jesus commands and models and empowers us to live in this way. Secondarily, we saw that peace depends on it. The Apostle Paul realizes that unless someone is willing to break the cycle of evil for evil, there is no peace possible. And aiming for peace is what we ought to be about. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says in the same Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. He's going to tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The reality is here is that as impossible to break a cycle of evil and reviling and persecution unless someone is willing to absorb the reviling and the evil and the persecution. We need the Spirit of Jesus in us to resist the idea of resentment. You know, the English language is really strange. It's weird. It's hard to learn. It's got a bunch of, it's a, got a bunch of hard and fast rules except when we break the rules. It's a hard language. But sometimes word make, words make sense. And I want to invite you to the the sense-making of the word resentment. Let's just hook on phonics this thing. Here's what it legitimately means. Re, okay, that would be again, again, do the thing again, send, sent. 
So what does it mean to resent something or someone? Evil is brought to you. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to package that thing up, make it a little bit bigger, a little more hurtful. Re-send. And until someone stops going to the mailbox, you just Hatfield-McCoy that thing all the way to the grave. You have to stop. You have to gain a strength from somewhere to say, I just absorbed it. It's stopping here with me. I'm not going to be a professional at resending evil. I'm not going to pray for greater and more biting witticisms. And who doesn't love a good witticism? But at some point, and you'll need to have wisdom to know this, it goes from a kind of playful, oh man, we're having some tension here, to a biting, settled animosity. You ever watched middle schoolers play or hang out or roughhouse? Remember thinking that with my kids at one point? Everybody's wrestling and having a great time and it's fun. Oh yeah, it's so good. And then, but you're always kind of watching because you know at any moment it can go from fun to not fun. You ever been in that? You ever been in an argument or a, a conversation with someone that all of a sudden you realize you're just seething mad and so are they and you think, how did we get here? You have to be honest about yourself that sometimes this is possible and it's in that moment when I believe the Spirit of Jesus would say to us, peace right now is going to depend, if it's possible at all, somebody's got to stop sending. I love that there are tempering statements here. The Bible is a wonderful book. It acknowledges that there is a creator and a standard and that we're all going to be held to account. We have in us what Scripture calls eternity. There's an idea that we can imagine perfection and we're always grasping for it. It's why we're disappointed in ourselves. It's why we're disappointed in others. All the beauty that comes through is filtered in some way, but we're grasping for it. So the Bible is unapologetic about that. At the same time, it is honest about the fact that we are fallen creatures who live in a fallen world and deal with imperfections. And so the way that this is written in Romans 12, just like Peter's example is, is encouraging, is in, this is encouraging to me. It says this, if possible, what a phrase. It doesn't say, be perfectly at peace with everyone all the time. Why? Well, because we live in a fallen world and you are not in control of others' minds, hearts, or circumstances. So if possible, there's the reality here. In fact, this is one of the most painful things. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace. This means that we must not overly judge one another or ourselves if there are still ongoing relationships that have some tension. That's the reality of a fallen world. If possible, pray in this way. Be bent toward, posture yourself toward peace, as 2 Corinthians 13 said, aim for restoration, but the reality of a fallen world is that it's often not possible. Sometimes the scar tissue is so thick. That is a tempering statement. It is real. This is not simple, Pollyannish, why don't you just make things right? Because sin is deep and difficult. He goes on and he says, so far as it depends on you. Well, this acknowledges that you have a part to play in these relationships. And if you're not able to control the other or the circumstances, you must be honest and say, is the Spirit of Jesus controlling me? I would say it like this. At a certain point in your relationships with others, 
Are you bringing forgiveness, forbearance, and sacrificial love? Or are you the one maintaining the wall? This is a contemporary sort of tongue-in-cheek way to say it, but at a certain point in all of your relationships, if there's tension, if there's animosity, if there's enmity, you can ask the question, who's paying for the wall? And this was a Bible thing way before it's a political thing, and I know it's kind of funny, and blah, blah, blah. Ephesians says there's a dividing wall of hostility. The question is, who's putting up the wall? Who's responsible for it? And it may very well be when you roll through the Rolodex, you guys know what that was? used to use pen and paper and put people's contacts in it. In my house, we didn't have a Rolodex. We'd moved, we'd moved on to the small town calendar that had everyone's phone number on it on the inside counter. Had people's birthdays, the whole deal. When you go through your contact list in your phone, if you sit down, there may come a moment when you're, it's brought to your attention, you know what? I'm not at peace here, and it's because I'm not trying and the reality is that sometimes difficulty, sometimes sin, sometimes hurt, sometimes evil is so deep that we've come to identify with that enmity in such a way we can't imagine ourselves without it. Now, this is getting a little psychoanalytical, but I'm, I'm a human soul and I know what these things are. You wouldn't know how to live if you weren't in such tension or hatred of that thing. We can come to the point where we are at peace with enmity and it's our fault. This does not mean that in a moment you need to totally change. This may be a weeks-long or a months-long or a years-long process of saying, Jesus, I am not strong enough yet, but would you make me more like you? And it may very well be that you go through your contacts and you say, no, I have a clear, clear conscience, clear conscience, clear conscience. I said what needed to be said. I have a posture for reconciliation, but this one's not on me. And that happens as well. So you shouldn't feel, this is what's so tempering about the sentence, Romans 12, you shouldn't feel some sort of undue guilt as though it's your responsibility to keep on, keep on, keep on giving just to make everybody happy. If possible, so far as it depends on you, you're a peacemaker. And the spirit of those who walk with Jesus will be known over the course of time. This is a trajectory kind of thing. You must become convinced that to live in this way, this kind of strength is available to you. Jesus commanded it, and that peace ultimately depends on this. Do you know that for peace with God to have been possible, God needed to absorb and give up the enmity that we sent his way? It turns out all peace, vertical or horizontal, depends on this spirit of forgiveness. Finally, Paul ends with an unbelievably powerful reminder. He says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I think this is helpful because in the moment of us absorbing evil, or blessing those who persecute, you may be tempted to think to yourself, this is the weakest thing I've ever heard in my life. Weren't we taught by the same Spirit of Jesus to abhor evil? Didn't it just say back in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil? Aren't we supposed to hate this stuff? And now we're told to just let it go? So is that the way the world is? It just lets everything go? We just get trampled over? We're just weak? We're cowering? 
And I'm so grateful that Paul says, no, no, one of the main reasons you can hand these things over is because they will ultimately be dealt with. Sometimes, when we've been sinned against in a perpetual or an ongoing way, the most difficult kind of faith to have is the kind of faith that says, God, I'm going to give this over to you because you will parse it out. You will figure it out. God will ultimately repay. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. This basic wisdom is at the core of what it means to be Christian. A Christian is a person who has said, I'm no longer going to be the judge of my own life of what's right and wrong. I'm going to let God be the judge. He says these things are evil. I agree with him. I'm confessing them. He says I need righteousness that's beyond anything that I can do. I agree. I'm going to clothe myself in Christ. And because we have been from the very beginning in that kind of mindset, we must be that way about world circumstances and the evil around us as well. It is possible to work and to strive and to posture ourselves in this world as though we are impatient with God himself. We think that at the end of all things, someone may have gotten away with it. And Paul says, no, I want you to remember that God is watching. We live all of life in his presence and no one will get away with it. Evil will ultimately be paid for. That is the answer to all of life. There is not one single slight, not one horrible, terrible bit of murderous injustice in the world, not one vulnerable child, not one neglected orphan or widow, not one bit of thievery, not one bit of backstabbing or betrayal, not one ounce of all that displeases the righteousness and holiness of God will escape his view. The reality is this. For those who are outside of Christ, evil will ultimately be paid for by eternal and ongoing separation from the judge of all of the earth. And he will judge rightly. And what he sees fit to judge concerning evil for those who are outside of Christ, we must not add to nor take away from. If you were the kind of person who says, we have to talk about hell, God talks about hell, I would say, amen, we must not shrink back from what God has said. He will punish evil and evildoers in hell eternally. That's what Scripture says, so we don't want to shrink back. But let me also beg of you, if you're in that spirit, to say, let us not add to the judgment of God. God does not need to judge sinners and you to make fun of them. God does not need to judge sinners eternally and for you to persecute them. We do not seek vengeance. That's what the text says. All of those who are outside of Christ, evil will be dealt with in this way. And for all of those in Jesus Christ, their evil will be dealt with by the unspeakable sacrifice, the death of the Son of God, absorbing wrath against all evil and forgiving it. To withhold forgiveness or to harbor bitterness, even if it takes years and years and years to harbor these things against someone outside of Christ, is to say hell is not enough. And to harbor these things against someone who is in Christ is to say 
the sacrifice of Jesus was not enough to deal with evil. I'm going to bring my own version. So we must be careful not to change spots with God. The world has a backbone. It has the greatest strength that is imaginable. And so it is not weak to live according to the Spirit of Jesus. In fact, my guess is is that it is a greater strength. Those who have refused to revile, those who have refused to take vengeance, those who stop a cycle of resentment, there is a strength there, a Spirit of Jesus-fueled strength that is deeper than any show of human power ever existing. Now you might say, what about areas that God has given over to us to, to bring about judgment in? Surely there are judges, and surely there is military, and courts, and parents, and these kinds of things, and that is very, very true. We'll get to some of that next week at the beginning of Romans 13. But let me encourage you, if you read a passage like this, and if you consider Matthew chapter 5, if he wants to go one mile, go two. Take your tunic and your cloak as well. If you read these passages and what you come out of these things with is a defense of justice and judgment, you may be missing the point. There is a kind of scandal, an undoing, a rebirthing of our instinct in this world that has to take place and must be handed over to Jesus before we'd ever be entrusted with properly judging ourselves of the evil of those around us. So this is not all Scripture says about evil and about good, but what it says and where it says it plainly, let us listen. Our instinct when persecuted and when evil comes to us must be met with response of obedience, not only to Jesus' words, but to His modeling and His spirit. We must remember that peace with God and with others depends on this absorbing of evil And we must magnify the judgment of God by saying, I will not take vengeance into my own hands, but leave it to Him.